app. It's time to get up and get going, South Coast. It's time for the Tim Weisberg Show on WBSM. Also streaming live on WBSM.com and on the WBSM app. Talk to Tim now at 508-996-0500 or send him a message or a voicemail through the WBSM app. And now, ready to start your day off with a bang. It's Tim Weisberg. Good morning, South Coast. This is not Tim Weisberg. This is Sheriff Paul Rowe. I'm filling in for Tim today. And on the call with us on the phone, we have Melissa Bronstein. And in the last hour, what we talked about was uh, the Israel and Palestinian issue. And we spoke with Shana Lowe. And Shana is a human rights lawyer with the Norwegian Refugee Council. And she was talking about things from a Palestinian point of view. And she was calling in from uh, East Jerusalem. And right now I have uh, Melissa Bronstein. Melissa, are you with us? Yes, good to be with you. Melissa, thanks so much for being with us. So um, tell the audience a little bit about you. And Melissa is, uh, you know, somebody who's a Harvard College graduate. She got a bachelor's degree in Near East Languages and Civilization. And then she got her master's at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And Melissa writes about Israel and Jewish life uh, and global anti-Semitism for the Washington Examiner and the Jewish News Syndicate. So, uh, Melissa, thanks so much for being on the program this morning. Glad to be here. So, Melissa, um, when you and I were talking, you were talking, mentioning to me that there is a Remembrance Day tomorrow. Can you tell us what that Remembrance Day is? Tomorrow is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, so we're remembering the day that Auschwitz was liberated in 1945, and this still resonates across the Jewish world. Jews are very aware um, still about the Holocaust, its impact on Jewish life. Um, The Holocaust wiped out two-thirds of European Jewry, one-third of world Jewry. The population of Jews worldwide is still smaller today than it was before the Holocaust, so the Holocaust still hangs over. The Jewish world is something that's on people's minds, especially in Israel since October 7th. Uh, it's something that is very much on the minds of the Israeli people and that Jews worldwide are aware of. You know, I knew it was six million Jews during the Holocaust, but I don't think I realized that was one third of the world's Jews and two thirds of Europe's Jews. I, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, it was a very sizable portion of the Jewish population. Very good. Thank you. So for callers, if you want to call in and ask Melissa questions or comments, the number is 508-996-0500. Again, that's 508-996-0500. So Melissa, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And first one, let's start basic. You know, are Jews a religion or an ethnic group? And, you know, explain that with the differences to the audience. So Jews are both. Jews are an ethno-religion. Uh, if you were filling out a demographic form and you're Jewish, you could check Jewish for both ethnic group and religion. There are Jews who will tell pollsters they're not Jews by religion, they're atheists, but the term itself applies to both. Interesting. Okay. And you, so there's also another term we hear about, it's Zionist. And it's I, I, I hear that kind of used as a sort of a pejorative, you know, in some circles. They talk about Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of uh, Israel, being a Zionist. What is a Zionist, you know, like, what does that mean? And um, would you identify with yourself as a Zionist or how do you, how would you describe yourself? So Zionist can be a pejorative uh, among certain circles. In other circles, it's a term worn with pride. If you hear it in a news context, it generally is being used in a political sense. And what it means, people who would call themselves Zionist, including me, would say that it's the idea that Jews, like every other people, 
let's say like the French or the Chinese, have the right to self-determination in their indigenous homeland. Once you get beyond that, Jews who love to debate about everything may get into some, you know, back and forth about what it should be beyond that. But in practical terms, it's basically another way to say pro-Israel. Okay, very good. And, you know, so do you believe that you can separate Zionism and Judaism? Are they two different ideas or is it one and the same? You know, the, how does that work? No, I would say you really can't. Israel is central to so many things in Jewish religious life, even beyond things you would read in the Bible. So, for example, Jews pray facing toward Jerusalem. This time of year, Jews around the world pray for rain in Israel. The Passover Seder, if we look at that, ends with singing next year in Jerusalem. And if you're at a Jewish wedding, the groom stomps on a glass at the end of the ceremony so that everyone in the room can remember the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So depending on where you are across the calendar or life cycle events, uh, Israel factors into so many things. I would say you really can't separate out the two. They're not two distinct concepts. They're two very overlapping concepts. Interesting. Okay. Actually, I went to your wedding. Um, what year was that? The, I don't 2008. Remember. My gosh, it was 2008. It's that long ago. So I remember the stomping of the glass when it was at your wedding. So uh, very nice time. It was, um, you know, in New York City, if I remember right. The um, yeah. <laughs> So the... You know, for callers, if you want to call in with questions or comments, um, you know, 508-996-0500. So you, you often hear that American Jews are divided on Israel. And what does that mean? You know, how common is it among American Jews to feel connected to Israel or to support the government? of Benjamin Netanyahu are to oppose it. Um, you know, the, you know, the actions going on right now, you know, like Israel's re uh, you know, response to the attacks that Hamas did in October, you know, like what, what's, what's your thought about Americans being divided on Israel or being unified? So I think you have to separate out support for the state of Israel from support for the current government. I would say they're two separate issues. But in the big picture, I would say American Jews are actually not so divided. When Pew did a survey a few years ago, they found 82% of Jewish adults in the U.S. said that caring about Israel was an essential or important part of what being Jewish meant to them. So I would say Israel is actually very important to the identity of the majority, a large majority of American Jews. When you're talking about the government in Israel, I'd say, so that's a, se a separate question. And so divisions can come up in conversations when you start drilling down about specific policies or questions about which political parties people prefer. Israeli Jews tend to lean right. Many American Jews, though not all, lean more to the left. But since October 7th, I would say you've seen a lot more unity among Jews, not only in Israel, but also in the U.S. in support of Israel. So that's interesting. The Israeli Jews are more right-leaning, as you said, and the American ones are, you know, more left-leaning. Um, but it were, help me understand this too. You know, the um, with you, when you have the um, Israeli, I'm sorry, the American Jews. You know, they are left-leaning, but it seems to me that it, the Republican and right-leaning governments in the United States are more uh, pro, like, you know, like a lot stronger supporters, more pro-Israel than the, you know, the Democrat or left-leaning. Is that a fair characterization? And, and what do you make of that then? Like, it's, it seems to be kind of like a little bit odds with, you know, the support for the, you know, for Israel. I mean, maybe I'm mischaracterizing that. What do you think? About the U.S. shift on Israel? Well, the, 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 the interesting divide between, you know, the, like, 
American Jews are like like liberal leaning, you know, whereas you just identify, but the Israeli Jews are more right leaning. But then, if, even mm -hmm. though American Jews are more liberal leaning, you know, Democrat leaning, it seems like that's kind of like not consistent with the support that is the U.S. government is giving. Israel, because it's more right-leaning U.S. government, like George Bush uh, Jr. He was, as you know, he's very, very uh, pro-Israeli, and Donald Trump was as well. You know, moving the uh, um, the uh, capital, uh, you know, of the embassy, excuse me, to um, to Jerusalem. Um, so it's kind of it's it's just an interesting dynamic where you have um, you know American Jews on the left, uh, not necessarily being as supportive of the government that actually supports the Israel. <laughs> Oh, I think so. I think it's like you're talking about a few separate issues here, but there is definitely um, a shift that's been underway on the, on the Democratic side. And I think Joe Biden, we've seen him trying to straddle the two separate pieces of his base, um, the more progressive section that's become increasingly hostile to Israel and the more traditionally liberal section of the base that still supports Israel. So I think that's two separate pieces of the Democratic base. On the Republican side, I think there's still a lot more unity and um, around the idea that Israel is an important ally and it's important to support Israel, um, that we should uh, make sure that the friendship between the two countries flourishes. So, right, I think like American Jews, depending on which segment of the population within American Jewry, there are Jews who vote on the right, there are Jews who vote on the left, but Jews overwhelmingly within the U.S. would say that, um, you know, Israel is important to them. Exactly what that means and do they support a particular government, then you're getting down into things where you may have more uh, questions where people are answering different ways. But, yes, so I'd say Israel um, gets a strong reaction from a lot of people and it reacts, people on the right and the left react differently at this point. Very good. On the line with us, we have Melissa Bronstein, who is a writer with about Israel and Jewish life and global anti-Semitism for the Washington Examiner and other outlets. And we have a caller. So um, uh, you're live on the good air. Morning. Caller. morning. Now, what's your name? Good morning. Um, I've got a lot of good information so far and it cleared up some things for me. But my question, it's not a question. I'm asking her opinion on Mr. Netanyahu who has been in, under indictment for quite a while. And a few years ago, he, the Supreme Court is elected and he tried to uh, change the law so he could appoint the Supreme Court. And I'm guessing it's because of this indictment. What does she feel about that? Very good, thank you. Uh, well, I think Netanyahu, I think the judicial reform um, is another like complicated subject where Israeli public opinion was showing that a lot of people thought the court needed to be reformed. It's different from in the U.S. It's not like here where you have the judge going before the Senate and there is, you know, like the president appoints, the Senate confirms, and then you go sit on the Supreme Court. So in Israel, the judges basically choose who else sits with them on the Supreme Court. It's a different setup. They don't have the same checks and balances. So um, before Netanyahu started sort of implementing all of his version of the reform, there was more uh, widespread agreement that changes needed to be made. And then the specific changes he started implementing rubbed lots of people the wrong way. So that became a whole uh, controversy in and of itself. I think that's receded to the background since October 7th because the Israeli public, for obvious reasons, is focused on 
the war that they're currently fighting and national security. Um, I also think going forward, Netanyahu is not likely to stay in the government. I think his having been the national security guy and then October 7th happening is really going to harm his public image. And I suspect that when Israel goes to elections again, someone else will be chosen to lead. Thank you. And we actually have another caller, Melissa. Um, so, caller, you're live on the air. What's your name? Hi, good morning, Paul. My name is William. And I live in America, and I'm a Jew, and the inner man, like the apostles in the New Testament, and that's the doctrine that I follow. They were Hebrews, and they were of Israel as well, and their doctrine is different than the doctrines today. They they have no fear of what man can do to them. They are servants of Christ, and to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay. And in everything, that he should be magnified. Thank you. It's not only for us to believe, but to partake of the sufferings yeah. of Christ as well. Well, do you have a question for our guest speaker, Melissa Bronstein, down in D.C.? Oh, that's why, this, well, there's so much confusion. There's fighting, killing, everybody's killing each other like that in the world. And uh, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus made that plain in Matthew 26. And that's what I believe. Matter of fact, I was looking to go to Gaza before all the bombing started. I was looking to get a passport and, and travel over there because I wanted to preach to them. Don't be afraid of those that kill the body and can do no more. Fear him in heaven so, who can destroy your soul and body in hell. Yeah, so we need to uh, go ahead and go to another break. But thank you for your call. And when we come back, I have a couple more questions for Melissa Bronstein, who's calling us from uh, Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Good morning, South Coast. This is Sheriff Paul Hero filling in for Tim White. And on the line with us, we have Melissa Bronstein, who is calling from Washington, D.C., and she's here chatting about um, Israel and Jewish life and global anti-Semitism, and she's a uh, writer for the Washington Examiner. Melissa, are you still with us? I'm here. Okay, great. Yep. So we have a caller on the line, and I'm going to go ahead and take that. And let's, uh, We're limited on our time. We have uh, just about five minutes left so uh caller if you can keep it really short and ask melissa a question so we can get back to some more questions that we had melissa thank you much you're live um hi um my name is david um i um i really take issue with uh, what uh, mrs brownstein um is saying about um about uh, zionism um she says jews have a right to self-determination in their indigenous homeland um well, that's great, uh, as long as it's their homeland, not somebody else's homeland. Um, I know that I know that Israel is important to uh, American Jews, and um, I. But I dispute uh, her assertion that you can't separate Zionism and Judaism. I think um, since the beginning of time, um, Jews have not. Uh, not agreed that Judaism is synonymous with uh, Zionism. Um, so, David, do you, do you have a question, or do you want me to give Melissa a chance to respond to that? Well, um, I just, I just, we're I, low I on just time. wanted to kind of uh, finish my my thought here okay. on on um, <clears throat> the separation of Judaism and and Zionism because it's a very important distinction. Um, um, I've I've seen Mrs. Brownstein's. Um, articles all over the place and and basically there's a huge conflation of 
anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel, which is 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 false. Okay. So, oh, do we just lose? Okay. So, um, I think we just the call just got dropped. But the um, Melissa, what what would you would you like to comment on what uh, the guest caller was you know mentioning there? Uh, I don't think criticizing the Israeli government or Israel the same way you would do for any other country is anti-Semitic. I've never said that it is. I'm not sure what this reference is to. Um, but I think it's when people get upset that the the two are supposedly being conflated, I think what often the issue is is that Israel is being demonized and delegitimized. I think that's where people cross over from legitimate criticism of whatever they're talking about into anti-Semitism. So I would not say that the two are the same. I would not say that uh, it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. I would say that the important thing is to criticize Israel or the Israeli government the same way you would do for any other country. That's fair. Yeah, that, that actually was, my, it's interesting. A caller, you know, led me to the next question I was going to ask you, which is that you write a lot about anti-Semitism, you know, which is another way to say Jew hatred, you know, if you can clear that up for listeners, but um, is it anti-Semitic to criticize Israel? That was my question. And actually, <laughs> it's funny that it just kind of you know, went into that. Um, so we have just a few more minutes to go. And um, I have, one, I guess, two more questions. The, of, you know, the second question I'll ask you is to comment on, you know, what's going on with Israel and um, Hamas and how Israel responded to, you know, an attack from Hamas. But then also, you know, it was reported last month that a Harvard-Harris poll found that only 27% of Americans believe that Jews are a class, um, as a class, are oppressors and should be treated as oppressors. But that number jumps to 67% with voters age 18 to 24 and what do you make of that distinct that difference between the number of people who are young thinking that they're oppressors whereas they're old you know they don't what what are your your thoughts about that i think it shows how much things have changed in terms of how americans are being educated i think this shows you the new frame that's being used in schools nationwide about everyone being lumped into being either an oppressor or oppressed and jews have been lumped into the oppressor category So it doesn't matter the nuances of Jewish history. It doesn't matter what's happened to the Jewish people. You know, the details don't matter. The people who have brought this framework have their belief, and they've flattened everyone into one of these two categories. And I think it becomes an issue. Once you buy into that, it becomes much easier to buy into a whole host of anti-Semitic myths and ideas. So it's not great um, in terms of, long-term societal outlook and i would say it's not a good sign and it's a red flag for parents who should be asking questions at their schools about what's being taught and talking to their children about how this is an oversimplification of a whole host of more complex issues very good and we have time for one more question and we don't have any callers so i'll ask the question so the um in october hamas attacked israel and Israel has responded. Um, in the last hour, we had a speaker on from who was calling in from East Jerusalem, and she was talking about how it's you know if I were to summarize it, Israel's response is a um, like kind of an over uh, response to that. What are your th- what, what would you say to somebody who says yes, Israel has responded you know too harshly uh, towards the people of Gaza in response to what Hamas did? What, what would you how would you respond to that? Well, I would say the October 7th attack was a huge deal for Israel. It's the equivalent of multiple 9-11s for their population size to lose 1,200 people in one day. 
And so Israel now has been doing surgical strikes and sent all sorts of so many people in uh, with the IDF to target Hamas, not to target civilians in Gaza. They're working very hard to go after Hamas only. And this is not a war Israel chose. This is not a war Israel wanted. There was a ceasefire on October 6th. It was broken by Hamas. And so this Israel sees as a war for its survival because Hamas has made clear that October 7th was just the beginning in their mind. They would like to carry out more October 7th going forward. And you can't have a civilian population living in fear that the rape and the abuse and the murder and the burning and beheadings, that this is going to happen on an ongoing basis. You can't, no civilian population can live like that. Very emphatically put. Melissa, thank you so much for calling in this morning. I really appreciate it. It's Melissa Bronstein. She's a resident of Washington, D.C., and she's a writer for the Washington Examiner and other or, um, like media outlets. And Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning to talk about this important issue. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I just received a text message from somebody I know, and this um, you know message basically said if you would comment on this, the ICJ, the inter- uh, ICJ, excuse the International Criminal um, ICJ is uh, it's not spelled out here, um, just ruled that it will not dismiss the South African case against Israel's genocide, alleged genocide against the Palestinians. Haven't heard yet whether or not um, it will implement emergency uh, rectification measures. Uh, checking other news outlets now is reported on CNN. So um, it's one of uh, somebody that knows me you know, sent in that message. So we're going to take our... Um, break right now and we're we back when we come back we'll be talking with marlene pollock who is um a social policy advocate with the coalition for social justice now the biggest stories on the south coast from the wbsm newsroom this is wbsm news former president trump is encouraging states to send their national guard troops to texas to support republican governor greg abbott in his fight against the federal government mark mayfield reports The conflict stems over Abbott's refusal to abide by a Supreme Court decision approving the removal of razor wire across the border with Mexico. Trump called the influx of migrants a matter of national security, public safety, and public health, and said Texas must be given what he calls full support to repel the invasion. Several GOP governors have already pledged their support for Abbott. I'm Mark Mayfield. The FAA says Boeing can once again fly its 737 MAX 9 planes. The agency just completed its safety review following the in-flight blown Alaska Airlines door plug. But the FAA accompanied the ruling with a warning, saying the incident must never happen again. It also said it wouldn't approve any expansion of 737 MAX lineup production for the time being. The state of Alabama has put an inmate to death by nitrogen hypoxia, the nation's first execution by the new method. Kenneth Eugene Smith was sentenced to death for a 1988 murder and lived through a botched 2022 execution attempt. Smith was pronounced deceased by physicians at 8.25 p.m. Central Standard Time. That's Alabama Department of Corrections Commissioner John Hamm. An attorney for Smith had asked the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to block the execution, arguing the untested method may violate the Constitution's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected the final appeal Wednesday with the execution then carried out Thursday night. WWE boss Vince McMahon is accused of sex trafficking in a new lawsuit. A former WWE employee who claims McMahon paid her to keep quiet filed a lawsuit in a Connecticut federal 
court Thursday. The woman alleges McMahon sexually assaulted her and trafficked her to others within WWE. In 2022, McMahon briefly retired from WWE after the Wall Street Journal reported he'd paid off multiple women who had accused him of sexual misconduct. George Carlin's estate is suing the creators of a new AI comedy special on YouTube that replicates the late legendary comedian's voice. Kelly Carlin, who manages the estate, posted on X that there was zero permission granted for the special called I'm Glad I'm Dead. Kelly Carlin said she's used to fake memes and quotes attributed to her father, but that this is an entirely different animal. She says that those who care for the legacies of artists need to take a stand. Turning now to the South Coast, a Connecticut man has been charged with murder for the shooting death of a Fall River man in December. Fabian Robles Nicasio allegedly killed Juan Manuel Batista Castro. South Coast Rail Service out of Fall River is expected to start in May or June. And a Rhode Island lawmaker is calling on the state's transportation head to resign over the Washington Bridge closure. Peter Alvidi says he won't resign. Time now for WBSM Sports brought to you by Sparks Auto in Dartmouth. The Boston Bruins bounce back from their recent loss with a 3-2 win over the Ottawa Senators in overtime. They visit the Philadelphia Flyers tomorrow afternoon. And the Boston Celtics captured their third straight win after blowing out the Heat 143-110. They host the L.A. Clippers tomorrow night. Now your forecast with ABC6. Get ready for the rain. It'll accompany us throughout the morning. The temperature's not that cold, though. It'll be in the mid to upper 30s. As we head into the afternoon, we'll be seeing less and less of a possibility for that rain to linger. Cloudy skies, temperatures climbing into the mid-40s. Drier late in the day, overnight tonight. Clouds and tomorrow, mostly cloudy in the low 40s. Be sure to watch ABC6 for my full seven-day forecast. From the ABC6 Weather Center, I'm meteorologist Ceci del Carmen on New Bedford's News Talk Station, 1420 WBSM. I'm Phil Devitt for WBSM News. Stay up to date with New Bedford's News Talk Station, WBSM, and get breaking news alerts with the WBSM app. Good morning, South Coast. This is Paul Hero, Sheriff of Bristol County. I'm filling in for Tim this morning. And in the last hour and a half, we had a couple of speakers talking about the Israel and Palestine and uh, different issues related to that. Um, for the next half hour, until about 8 o'clock, we have Marlene Pollock with us. And Marlene, in full disclosure, is actually the person who talked me into running for sheriff. And Marlene, are you still with us right now? I am, I am. <laughs> okay, very good. Marlene, so Marlene is um, affiliated with different organizations. She was a uh, New Bedford uh, School Committee member, and she's also a member of the Bristol County for Correctional Justice, and she's a member of Coalition for Social Justice. And she's very active with promoting uh, social policy and social justice. She goes to the State House on a regular basis to advocate for and against different leg bills and legislation. And so, Marlene, thanks for being on with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Marlene, I have a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. And um, just so we pace ourselves, we're going to be taking a break very shortly um, at 640 and then again at, I'm sorry, 640, 740 and then again at 750. But just so we um, get started, um, you know, the fair share, you participated in the fair share uh, amendment, which was a tax hike on the rich. Tell us a little bit about that, you know, and like what your role was with uh, pushing for the fair share victory, you know, and how, like, you know, what is it paying for? Like, what does that, you know, tax hike pay for and how certain elements are um, tried to, you know, is being sabotaged and how, you know, how you guys have fought back, you know, what's going on with that? So it took us seven years to pass the fair share amendment. Um, we are uh, CSJ here in the South Coast 
is a member of Raise Up Massachusetts. And this is a, a coalition of 150 organizations that are community, uh, religious, and union. And we were able to gather 150,000 signatures and put fair share on the ballot. However, a uh, lobby group of um, millionaires and billionaires went to the SJC and convinced them that our wording was not constitutional. So long story short, the legislature took up the fair share uh, crusade so we didn't have to get signatures all over again. And so we, along with other organizations, uh, worked with legislators who overwhelmingly backed, uh, you know, putting it on the ballot again. And then this last November, it won 52 to 48%. And basically what it caught... Huh? I was going to say, why is it important that this had passed? What's the why is it why was you fought for it for seven years? Why was this so important? Because the tax um, basis in Massachusetts was skewed toward the wealthy. So, for example, um, even though Massachusetts could be the fourth richest, if it was a country, it could be the fourth richest country in the world. Uh, the wealthy uh, were paying only six percent of their income in taxes, while everyone else was paying um, over 10.5%. So, you know, when it when we came to things like fixing bridges or uh, having transportation that could meet the needs of working class and poor people um, or, um, you know, education, uh, so many people could not afford to go to community college, uh, we wanted to see those disparities fixed. And by passing this, it meant that if you, and I I always emphasize this, if you are making a million dollars a year, that is $19,000 a week gross, which I when I tell that to people, they always go, huh, what? Um, $19,000 a week before taxes. Um, and so the, the wording of the amendment, and it's a constitutional amendment, is that the first million in income is protected. In other words, everybody who makes a million will pay the same rate as the rest of us, which is 5%. But people who make over a million, and we do have quite a few billionaires now in the state, after that first million, they will be taxed four cents on the dollar. So that in turn has created uh, millions of dollars coming into the to this treasury, specifically designated for education and transportation. So, I mean, we were thrilled, we were so happy. And that money, uh, if people want to look it up, goes into a separate account so that we can keep track of how it's doing. And, and it's doing great. For example, CERTA has just announced free bus fare for six months. And guess what? Guess who's paying for it? Fair share. Now, the, the, the bus company is saying a grant, but I talked to our direct organizer and she said, no, this is coming from fair share. Fair share is now paying for free meals for every single kid in a commonwealth in school, right? It's now paying for free community college if you're old, older 25. And, you know, it's going to pay for uh, bridge repairs and all kinds of other transportation. So it's it's a fabulous thing. And uh, But, you know, once we did pass it, um, right away there were people, as Paul said, who were trying to undermine it. And one way they did it was this um, to try to say, Okay, well, if we're a married couple, we can file singly, and that would put them under that million-dollar um, level, right? And so raise up, and we're part of that. We had to scramble and go to the legislators and say, 
please do not allow them to get over on this tax. And so what we were pushing for was that if you file jointly at the federal level, then you have to file jointly at the state level. You can't file singly. So um, that was that would have been a real drain on the money that fair share was going to raise. So, um, and then the second, is oh, it okay to keep going or you have, have to take a break? Yeah, we're a little bit over for taking a break, but callers can also call in with questions at 508-996-0500. We have Marlene Pollock on the line with us talking about the fair share amendment, which raised taxes on the rich to pay for things like transportation and education. And we'll be right back, Marlene. Stay with us. And if anybody wants to call in, questions or comments from Marlene, 508-996-0500. We'll be back in just a moment. Good morning, South Coast. This is Sheriff Paul Hro filling in for Tim. And we have on the line with us Marlene Pollock, who is with the uh, Fair Share uh, Amendment. She was, uh, it was a Rise Up Coalition, and she's also a member of Coalition of Social Justice. And Marlene, are you still with us? I am. Great. So um, before the break, we have to go to another break because you have to take uh, so many breaks. But we're going to go to another break in probably about two or three minutes. And really quickly, um, you know, do you, let's talk about, um, you know, the 9C cuts that are going on right, right now and lift our kids. What's lift our kids for the audience who doesn't know about that? And a 9C, and I'll explain really quickly, a 9C is a section of Massachusetts general law that allows the governor to do a, a unilaterally go in and cut money from the budget uh, for different spending. And so that's what's going on right now. There was about a billion dollar uh, deficit with the budget. And, you know, so the governor has gone in. She's uh, unilaterally cutting different things to close that uh, budget deficit. So with Lift Our Kids, that I know that's important to you, Marlene. What is that and how are these 9C cuts affecting that? So um, for the last four years, we've been working hard to win badly needed increases in the welfare cash grant. And we are part of a statewide coalition called Lift Our Kids. It's actually Lift Our Kids Out of Deep Poverty. Because in Massachusetts, we don't the, the, the cash grant doesn't even come close to half of the federal poverty level. So this coalition has worked very hard and, you know, and is very astute with the legislature to try to get an increase in that grant. Right now, it's um, a family of three gets uh, $783 a month. And if you consider, and a lot of people think that people on welfare have subsidized housing, but they a lot don't. Most don't, I would say. So if you consider rents and what the situation is, the price of food, the the coalition has only been able to get very meager uh, increases after nearly 20 years of no cash increases for families on welfare from 2001 to 2009. So they've been able to get 10%. But as we know, inflation has really wiped out the last couple of 10%. And then another one was supposed to go into effect in April. And that's what Maura Healy cut, which we were shocked because on on the one hand, she has shown uh, sensitivity to people struggling like that. Um, and and this, this increase would have only affected about 14 and a half million. Well, I think it would have cost 14 and a half million dollars and it would have affected um, thousands of families and just put them slightly over the 800 a month uh, you know, amount. So it, it, it's really been shocking and disheartening. And one of our, the lead person in our organization grew up on welfare and talks about the trauma and the damage when you just don't even have enough for heat. You don't have enough to, to take your clothes to the laundry. 
Uh, you don't have enough for shoes. You don't have enough. I mean, you know, you name it. So uh, it, it's very concerning. And that kind of uh, was surprising because we also had a big victory, thanks to more, partially and thanks to more Healy, by getting uh, free communication in all uh, jails and prisons in the state. So it was it was just confusing. On the one hand, she's really being sensitive to people who are struggling and could not afford even the bills to call their loved ones incarcerated. And then at the same time, cuts this group, which is probably the same group. So um, it was, it, you know, and also um, just gave subsidies for, uh, there's a program called HDIP, mm-hmm. and it, it constructs market rate apartments and luxury apartments. And they got a boost, a subsidy, to that group who, as far as I could see, doesn't really need it, uh, of uh, went from one, 10 million to 33 million in her budget. So a lot of head scratching going on, you know, because how can people survive literally yeah. uh, on so little money and then have that that well, little bit cut even more? So, well, you, answered, um, you answered the question I was about to ask you before we go to break, which was if you were to tell the governor where should she make cuts to balance the budget and, you know, it would have been in the HDIP program, um, which, as you said, gives subsidies to developers for building um, homes. So we have to go to another break right now. And for uh, callers who might want to call in and chat, uh, the number is 508-996-0500. We're going to take a break for a moment. And then when we come back, we'll talk with Marlene and her, about her work with criminal justice reform. Jim. Good morning, South Coast. This is Sheriff Paul Rowe filling in for Tim this morning. And on the line with us, we have Marlene Pollock, who's talking about uh, different social policy issues. But we have a caller, Ray, who's calling in to ask Marlene or me a question about uh, what we're chatting about. So, Ray, can you hear us okay? Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. And I think Marlene is still with us as well. Yes, I Oh, Ray, actually, have, uh, if you can turn your radio down, that would be a big help to us because we are getting some feedback on our end. On we can hear you um, when we're talking and, and it's, um, yeah. Okay, I hope that helps. That should help, yes, thank you. Ray, what's your question for me or Marlene? Yes, concerning the, uh, the 254,000 household millionaires in Massachusetts with a 4% surcharge, my question is that 4% That's a really good question, and I hope Marlene knows the answer because I don't know the answer to that. I wasn't close to this. So, Marlene, what are your thoughts about that? So, it's just income, and the uh, it has nothing to do with commercial property, nor does it have any, anything to do with assets. Totally based on income. And the 4% is attached to the rest of their tax bill. I, I think that's what he said. Do they, do they pay that 4% along mm-hmm. with the rest of their taxes? Yes. Yeah. So that, but the amount that's coming in from that is is uh, being put into a separate account because so, they expect it to be about $2 billion. Very good. Thank you. Hopefully that answers the question. So we have just probably about a minute and a half to go before we are. it's going to automatically kick over to the top of the hour news break. And when we come back, we're going to have the Deputy Police Chief of New Bedford, uh, Scott Carolla, with us. Uh, but Marlene, really briefly, in about you know, 90 seconds or less, can you tell us about what efforts you've done with criminal justice reform and what you were advocating for at the State House? So 
know, um, we just had a big victory, and I mentioned that when I was talking about the Lift Our Kids, in that we got uh, free communications for all incarcerated people in Massachusetts. We are the first state to do all incarcerated facilities, um, I mean all facilities, and um, the fifth state to include prisons. The, um, I think we're also a, a winner in terms of including email and video. So for years, the poorest of the poor families uh, were being charged unscrupulous, exploited telephone rates uh, that for a lot of people meant that they couldn't talk to their families at all. But for those who could, I mean, it was like, do you pay the light bill or do you call your loved one in jail? Not to mention the fact that attorneys couldn't, you know, had to pay.